Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. I'd like to say Happy Father's Day to all of the fathers among us. Um, hope you all have a, a special day celebrating. And uh, I'm going to pick on our beloved intern for a minute, um, Nathan Voss. Great to have you, Nathan. You're a wonderful young man. CRC needs men like you. Uh, but last Sunday evening, uh, you said you said something um, to the effect of, "Now I'm not married, but I know enough to know this." And then he launched into something. I said, "Wow, this is this is courageous ground for him to tread on." <laughs> and he said, "If uh, if a husband says that he loves his wife and then takes her out on a date and goes to the restaurant that only he likes and the movie that only he wants to see, he doesn't really love his wife. And I said, well, that's just great because you've described all the husbands in here, their ideal Father's Day date. And uh, so now that Nathan has thoroughly ruined Father's Day for all of us, I figure that I'm going to go one step further and remind all of the fathers in this room about our complete inadequacy uh, to measure up to our Heavenly Father. So, of course, in God's good providence, the story of the prodigal son lands on Father's Day, and we can remember our Father in Heaven. So, we've been going through the Gospel of Luke, and here we are in Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 11. This is God's Word. This is inspired, it's inerrant, it is given to us for our good. Words breathed out by the Holy Spirit, let us attend to its reading. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, "'How many of my father's hired men have food to spare?' And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house... He heard music and dancing. 
So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. If you've ever seen the painting, The Return of the Prodigal by Rembrandt, you've had the the blessing of, of seeing one of the greatest depictions of the central truth of the Bible of God's love and grace. I'm no art expert. I don't even really know how to enjoy art. But I found myself this week completely captivated by this painting, even in a couple of moments as I'm looking at the painting, getting a little bit choked up. And I don't know particularly what that means. Maybe on Father's Day it's time for me to admit that as a father of two daughters, I am getting softer and softer by the day. I'm sitting in my study getting teared up looking at a painting. But this painting is, is so beautiful, and it reminds us of the story of the prodigal son, and the central truth of God's word. There are several characters in this painting, including the father, the two sons, several onlookers, including what seems to be a tax collector who is, who is peering at this scene of the father hugging his son. His son's robes are tattered. His hair has been shaved off, probably from lice. His shoes are ripped up and torn. In fact, one of his shoes isn't even on. And you see that the life is almost gone from this son. And there the father stands before him in a loving embrace. The older son is there as well, looking down upon this scene, stewing in his self-righteousness. And it puts a situation before us. It confronts us with the truth of the Bible. Not only that painting, but this passage confronts us with all of those truths. See, whether our lives are more characterized by rebellion, by wandering off and getting tangled in sin, or they're more characterized by self-righteousness, staying close to the home and yet still being lost, Whether we are part of either camp, we are confronted with a God who joyously receives people who come to him not because of anything in themselves, but in the righteousness that his true son, his natural son, his only begotten son gives to us in the gospel. So here's our foundational and central truth for today's sermon is this. Jesus teaches us the glorious truth of the Father's great love to save sinners, whether they are lost in rebellion or self-righteousness. That's what Jesus teaches us in this passage, the, the glorious truth of the Father's great love to save sinners, those who are lost in rebellion or self-righteousness. Here's the reality we get from that truth that transforms our lives. It's this. The wonderful good news of Jesus Christ is so compelling 
to those who understand it, so beautiful to those who, who grasp the, even just a bit of the truth of the gospel. It's so compelling that it becomes transforming to us as we live in genuine and joy-filled gratitude all of our days. If we understand the gospel, if we understand the love of the Father, it becomes such a compelling picture to us that it will transform our lives to love and adoration and devotion to our God. We remind ourselves where we are in Luke, Luke chapter 15. We remember at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus is receiving sinners and tax collectors unto himself, and he is dining with them. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law are doing what? They are grumbling because of this. They are scoffing at the grace that Jesus is showing to these people who come to him and who want to be changed and transformed by Jesus. So Jesus responds by telling two parables at the beginning of this chapter, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. And those are given to us to show us joy in heaven. There is joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. And what Jesus is doing in that passage to those who are hearing him and to we who read that passage, we are confronted with the question of whether or not we will share in that joy of heaven over sinners who repent and come to God for salvation. Jesus finishes that picture in Luke chapter 15 by telling this story, his most famous of parables, the parable of the prodigal son. We're actually meant to learn the most about the father. It begins with uh, the statement, there is a father who had two sons. We understand this story in light of who the father is. Let's look at how the father relates to his rebellious lost son. The son, the younger son, does something shocking. Most of us know the contours of this story. Uh, We've probably heard several sermons on this story, which did nothing but put my heart in anguish all week, thinking, I'd better not mess this up. It's the prodigal son sermon. So we all know the the contours. He asks for the share of his father's estate. This probably would have been one-third of all that the father owned. The older son would have been in line to receive twice the inheritance of his younger brother. So we're probably talking about one-third of the estate of his father. This would have seem odd and perhaps shocking and a very mean thing to do today, back then, this would have, of course, been unimaginable. A slap in the face, not only to the father, but to the surrounding community with uh, the the tight-knit ways in which they had to live back then and probably a little bit more interdependence than we could ever know today. The son has slapped his father in the face, and the town as well. But the father obliges. He leaves his younger son to the freedom that he so craves. He gives him this inheritance. Verse 13 tells us something interesting. It says, not long after that, really translated, we would say, not many days afterwards, he set off. Now, he would have had inherited not just cash, right, but land and other kinds of assets. So he had it in line in order to sell all of those things off, even before he asked his father, so that he could have as much with him as humanly possible as he sets out and gets out of town ASAP. So strangers are coming and living on the father's land within days, the land that he worked so hard to attain and to work in order to have something to give to his sons, all gone in one fell swoop. The younger son goes on the ancient equivalent of what would be a Vegas vacation. His cash flow seems endless at first, but the problem is that his lust 
is endless as well. And the endless nature of his lust outweighs his cash flow. The word there for uh, wild living that we see in this passage speaks of a madness that knows no bounds. He was living in ways that would have made most sinners blush, leaning more and more into the lusts that he had. But that's how sin operates. That it, the more you feed it, the more it wants, the more it needs, and the more you get trapped in a cycle where there's almost no reasonable means of escape. It's not just the shocking nature of his request, but it's where he has gone. What we see over and over in the Old Testament is that when people leave the promised land, as this younger son has done, he's outside of the land of God's people. Normally where people are geographically, tells you something about where they are morally. You see that uh, especially in Genesis. As people are flirting with the boundaries of the promised land, it seems like again and again they get themselves into trouble. So it's not just the shame of his request. It's where he has gone. He's living without regards for all of the moorings that he received in his upbringing, shirking all of the morality with which he was raised. Verse 14 is an interesting verse. And it reminds us that it's not about how we receive this story. It's more about how shocking this story would have been to those who are listening to Jesus. Since we know the story and since we know how it ends, that tends to shape the way that we hear it. But to those who are listening to Jesus, tell it for the first time, particularly those who had been grumbling against Jesus, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, this would have made their blood boil. So in verse 14 happens, and Jesus says that the economy takes a downturn, he loses all that he has, and he is left with nothing, they will say something like, good, maybe he will now learn. So we ask ourselves, is this how we act? Is this how we think when we see people's lives turned upside down by sin? Are we the kind of people who might delight in the despair of the wicked, who might say to those who get lost and mired in sin, to those who wander far astray and become so lost, that we say, that's good for me because it reminds me that at least I'm not like that. I know I'm imperfect, but I'm not as bad as that. The point of this story is to tell us about the character of God. And what is it that God is doing to bring back those who have wandered, to bring back those who have gone astray We should rather, brothers and sisters, despair over the despair of the wicked. Not only those who leave the fold, leave the church, perhaps they were raised with the Bible, perhaps they were raised uh, with uh, trying to point them to the glories of Christ and the glories of the gospel, and then they leave. But what about the people who live their entire lives not knowing about the satisfaction that Jesus and only Jesus can bring? We ought to be the kinds of people who despair over the despair of the wicked, and who pray that many might come and know the grace of God. The phrase that says he hired himself out when he, uh, when everything hits rock bottom, that's a way to describe completely giving yourself over to someone, complete servitude or slavery in order just to survive. Now, the kicker here is that he's hired himself out to whom? To a Gentile. So Israelites are hearing this and their blood is continuing to boil. They're angered more and more by this. It would have been like pushing the rewind button. Their uh, historical understanding of the people is that they once were enslaved in Egypt, but God, God brought them out from there. He liberated them, and then here this younger son is pushing the rewind button and going and becoming a servant of a Gentile 
because of his sin. To make matters worse, he ends up feeding pigs, an unclean animal in the Old Testament uh, would have been despised. That kind of action would have been despised by the righteous Israelites. He, see, he, he surrounded himself with sin and filth that he chose. But then, because of the patterns of his living, he is surrounded by things he did not necessarily choose as his master sends him out to feed the swine. Hostility and anger fills the hearts of the Pharisees, the worst kind of sinner in the worst kind of situation, doing the worst kind of things. He's so hungry that he'll eat what uh, the slop that he's feeding to the pigs. So then he engages in something we might call rationalized reconciliation. Rationalized reconciliation. He thinks about this situation. He says, look, I, my father's servants have it way better. What I am doing is absolutely crazy. And so we engage in this kind of, of action a lot. We wrong someone and then we're thinking about how do we reconcile ourselves to them. And so what we do is we lower the bar of expectation for their forgiveness. Right? We have offended them and what we want to do is, is we'll say to them, look, I know that what I have done is wrong, but if you just sort of let me back into your life, Don't fully forgive me, but let me back into your life and then I will show you. I will work off the debt that I have incurred and I will prove to you that I really am sorry. Rationalized reconciliation. The son comes to his senses. He says, this is crazy. Let me rehearse my lines, memorize what I have to say, go back to my father. Perhaps I can be uh, enslaved. To him, You see the theme of slavery that's being weaved in and throughout this entire story? This younger son was a servant to his passions and his lust, enslaved to sin, so that he hires himself out to a Gentile. Meanwhile, he realizes that it would be better if he were a servant of his own father in the house where he was a beloved son. So he rationalizes a route for reconciliation. Maybe this would have been the best route to go. Maybe it seems like the best thing for him to do. Except for the word that comes in the middle of verse 20. You see that second paragraph that begins in verse 20. It's that word, but. So Jesus is going to tell us something that is unexpected as this younger son heads for home. We don't know exactly what the Pharisees would have been thinking, perhaps Uh, I mean, they knew that Jesus, at this point, they knew that Jesus usually did the unexpected. But what Jesus says here certainly would have been shocking. The father, as we know, throws away all convention when he sees his son. He would have had to lift up his robes so that his legs would have been unimpeded so that he could run out to greet his boy, which would have been something that men like him never would have done. This is a son who's returning not in triumph, not one who went away to fight for his country or his people and he's returning victorious. This is a son returning in a heaping pile of filth and sin, stinking, The life almost gone from him. An object of scorn for the whole town. And the father throws away all convention and he noticed that he runs to his son before anything the boy says. The father doesn't know what he's going to say. The father doesn't know explicitly why the son has come home. But he cares about one thing. He is home. He is home. I've had... The difficult situation in my life the last couple of weeks of seeing a good friend who uh, hurt himself badly 
by wandering off into various patterns of sin and being left in a very low place, coming home. The enduring image in my mind when I went to visit him was his trying to apologize to his father and before he chokes out a word, his father comes over to him and throws his arms around him and kisses him. His father's forgiveness went before the son's asking for it. But the younger son here gets out his planned speech. Beautiful words, I think, for us to be reminded of. Beautiful words for us, perhaps, to say to our own father, our own heavenly father. Father, I have sinned against heaven, and I have sinned against you. But the father is in no mood to negotiate the terms of his son's slavery. He's not interested in making him a servant. And so he calls his servants together to rejoice. And he says, the party is on. My son has returned. He gives him a robe that would signify his position of sonship. He puts a ring on his finger, sandals for his feet. There will be no talk of slavery for his son. They kill the fattened calf and they rejoice. And there's dancing and singing. As the father says, this son was dead but is alive. He was lost but now is found. We need to remind ourselves that Jesus tells us this story not because it's so heartwarming, not because it's a wonderful story, which it is, but he's pointing us to a reality that is true about our God. There's joy in heaven. Remember Luke chapter 15. There is joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, which tells us about the heart of God in his love of saving lost sinners. He's telling us, he's teaching us about the God of Scripture. And these truths, these truths are the kinds of truths that will transform our thoughts about God so that it might nurture love and adoration and devotion to God. These are life-transforming truths. These are truths that will change us from the inside out if we begin to grasp and know and understand them. John Owen says this, As much as we see the love of God, that is how much we will delight in Him and no more. As much as we see the love of God, that is how much we will delight in Him and no more. Listen to what he says. Every other discovery about God, which would be what? His attributes like his holiness, his power, his transcendence, his might. Every other discovery of God without his love will make the soul fly from him. It will make the soul fly from him. Because that is a being around whom you would not want to be if you were a sinful creature. But, Owen says, if the heart be once taken up with the eminent truth of the Father's love, it cannot choose but be overpowered, conquered, and endeared unto him. It cannot but be overpowered and conquered and endeared unto him. And that is the truth of the gospel, that our hearts cold, embittered to God, when we hear of the love of the Father, those truths overcome dead hearts and give life where there was once nothing but death. And when we understand and know the love of God, we fly not from him, but we fly to him. For he is a God who loves to save sinners. So Owen says, if the love of a father will not make a child delight in in him, What will? You know, we struggle with the message of being saved by grace and the message of ongoing sanctification and pursuit 
of righteousness and holiness. And this is where the conversation needs to begin. Do you understand the love of the Father? If you do, that is how much you will delight in him. will transform your thoughts about God so that it might nurture your love and adoration and devotion to him. And that painting, The Return of the Prodigal, art scholars, uh, of whom I, I am not one, they have made much about um, the two hands of the Father. The Son is kneeling before the Father. Basically, the life is, is empty within him, from within him. Uh, kneeling before the Father, and the Father is hugging him. And his hands are asymmetrical. The left hand is very wide, strong. It looks rough, powerful, solid. His right hand looks slender, light, looks softer, almost as if to say it's a more caring hand. And those are the two truths that we need to balance and understand that the God of Scripture is a God who is able to save. The God of Scripture is a God who is able to bring us into a state of blessedness and holiness because of who he is in his might and his power and his transcendence. But he is so filled with love that he is a God to whom we can fly because of his grace. Perfect love, as First John says, casts out fear. Our time is running short, but we should at least mention the second son, the, the older son, has received a lot of attention in recent years, and I think for good reason. The older son is like a Pharisee. He's, he scoffs at grace. He looks at the treatment that his father gives to his younger brother, and he scoffs at it. He is indignant at the treatment that his younger brother is giving. Look at verse 29. It brings back this theme of servitude and slavery. Verse 29, look, all these years I've been slaving for you, and I've never disobeyed your orders. That's exactly the right way to translate this phrase. See, the older brother has never embraced his position as a beloved son. Rather, uh, he thinks that he is earning the favor of his father. He thinks that he is working so that he might inherit what his father will one day give him. So you see the picture of slavery is consistent in both sons. One squanders his wealth because he is enslaved to lust, followed by servitude to a Gentile, followed by a desire to be a slave in his father's house. Meanwhile, the older brother counts the days of his life, all of which he believes are slaving away for his father. He does not live like a son. He lives like a slave. But the truth, and hear this, the truth is that the righteousness of the older son will never set him free. He can't receive grace. He is allergic to grace. He lives in a universe where every action has an equal reaction, one that makes sense in light of it. A life that is based on his, his own performance. And when it's based on your own performance, you can't rejoice in the good things that come to other people. See, that's the wonderful picture about grace. And that's what's wonder about, wonderful about being transformed by grace is that as we are transformed by grace and the love of the Father, we become the people of God who want to see the grace of God and the love of God realized by as many people on the earth as God would save. That's the kind of people that we need to be. The older brother needs to know and hear and understand what the prophet Isaiah says, that when you think you are piling up your righteousness before God, all of that righteousness is like filthy rags. And that's, of course, not to do away with the call to righteousness and the call to live for our God, but it is to point to the truth that to be a Christian is to understand that it is Christ's work alone that saves. He forgives you of your sins. He grants you 
his perfect righteousness. And so that leads us, as we close, to the good news for today. See, both of, uh, everyone here falls probably close to one of these two sons. Our lives are characterized either by rebellion, wandering far away in our sin, or they're characterized by self-righteousness, thinking that we can earn the favor of our God. Really, most people fall into one of those two camps. All human beings struggle with those kinds of weaknesses. But there is one, there is one who lived as a human, as a God-man, and still lives as a human, who did not struggle with either of those. See, the great love of the Father is shown to us in the life of Jesus Christ. For he, he is the truly righteous Son. He left the glory of heaven to go to a faraway country, not to squander his father's wealth in wild living, but he did not consider equality with God a thing to be clutched onto. And he who was rich became poor so that those who were poor might become rich. See, he's the good shepherd of the parable of the lost sheep who goes into a far country in order to find the one who has been lost. He did not stay at home like the older son of this story. He came and he sought out his own, so that he might seek and save the lost. He's righteous. He is the obedient son who counted it all joy, who endured the cross in order to pay the price for our sin. But the sacrifice that he paid for sin was not the end because his righteousness was so enduring and so powerful that the cursed death of the cross and the the curse of death itself could not hold him down. But the Father raised him up and he vindicated him before the entire world and raised him up by giving him life and raising him up from the dead. And then he was raised to new life in the glories of heaven who went back home to be received not as a wayward prodigal but as a victorious warrior who led captivity itself captive in his train. And the gospel was declared throughout all the earth so that all who believe in Jesus Christ might be clothed with his righteousness. A robe of his righteousness might be placed upon you. And God the Father might call you his son or his daughter because the robe of Christ's righteousness is given to you by faith. And as if that is not enough, he took his seat at his father's right hand and he fulfilled his promise to his disciples when he said, I will send you a helper. And that was God the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says that his love is shed abroad in our hearts so that in the power of the Spirit we might know this God and cry out to him and say, Abba, Father. Christ is our righteousness. Slavery is the only option for your rebellion and your self-righteousness. But adoption is when we are found in our righteous older brother, the good shepherd, the lamb of God, the savior of the world. I ask you, brothers and sisters, is the truth of this message not so compelling? Is the love of the father not so wonderful that it becomes transforming for our lives? that it nurtures in us love and adoration and devotion to him? Does your heart not leap and rejoice at the truth of Jesus? Are you not overjoyed to know that each and every day God is calling sinners unto himself that leave behind their rebellion, that leave behind their self-righteousness? And there is joy in heaven over each and every sinner who repents and believes the gospel. 
The painting of Rembrandt, the tax collector, sits there in the middle, his hand on his heart, captivated by this picture that's going on before him. A son, shaved head from lice and filth, wearing a dirty, filthy robe, tattered, the life sucked out of him, his face thinned, his shoes worn out. The father hugging and embracing him with his strong hand and his grace-filled hand. The tax collector stares because he sees himself in the prodigal. Because, like all of us, his heart can sing to know the truth of this. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for sending your Son to show us that love. Father, may this truth be so beautiful to us. May this truth draw us in, that it would transform our thoughts of you, that we would delight in the love of our Heavenly Father, that we would delight in the seat that you give at your table to all who believe in Jesus Christ from every corner of the globe. We join themselves to you through your Son. We pray for the work of the church throughout the world as people come in, as people are baptized, as people profess faith, as they gather around your table of grace. May you feed them. May you nourish them. This is all for your glory and for your honor's sake. We thank you for your amazing grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Number 380 in our...